0: Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, Laura Yankwich, a recent HLS graduate, speaks with Roger Martella, Chief Sustainability Officer for GE. They discuss GE's recent sustainability commitments and how the company is tackling its operational and downstream emissions across the aviation, public health, and power sectors. One note for our listeners: this episode was recorded before Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Roger, I'm so looking forward to talking to you today. We're going to be talking about corporate sustainability goals and net zero emissions targets in particular. Just to say a little bit about Roger, my interviewee, he's the chief sustainability officer at GE, which is one of the nation's most storied companies, first founded by Thomas Edison and JP Morgan. And times have changed a lot since the invention of the light bulb. And now GE focuses its businesses on three main global industries, aviation, healthcare, and energy. Roger's leading the company as it develops its approach to sustainability as it relates to environmental, social, and governance considerations, or ESG. Roger's an expert in the field, having written multiple books on the intersection of ESG, climate change law, international environmental law, and human rights, and having worked both in government and in private practice as an environmental lawyer. Roger, so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me.
1: Larry, thank you for inviting me uh, to you and Carrie and the Harvard Environmental Energy Law Program for all the outstanding work you're doing here. It's a real honor to, to have a little role to be part of that. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Great. Well, I'll just jump right in. As a starting point, I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about your role at GE. So... You've approached environmental questions throughout your career from a variety of angles, from being at the US EPA to the Department of Justice's Natural Resources Division, and then in private practice. So I'm interested, can you describe your role at GE now and what responsibilities you have within the organization and who you're mostly working with there?
1: It's interesting because I see my role as a bit of a conductor. I'm, I'm here to kind of coordinate and align the work of many people and a large team across the company to help achieve our sustainability goals and i think part of what i do is is very similar to other people at other companies in my position and then i think part of what i do is kind of unique to ge which i really value and appreciate the opportunity i think the first part which i think is probably you know akin to other chief sustainability officers and other folks with similar responsibilities is to focus on esg environmental social and governance and what I think of when I think of that is, how are we improving our impacts as we do our business? How are we improving our impacts to our people, to our communities, and to the planet? How are we running our businesses so that we're being good stewards of safety, of human rights, of environmental stewardship, giving back to our communities? And how do we help make sure we're we're running that like a business, that we're setting metrics and targets, and we're operationalizing that so we can make commitments to improve our impacts to our people, to our communities, and to the planet? And then we're operationalizing that across the company to achieve those goals and setting good goals and things like that. So that's part of my job, the ESG part of it. And I think you'll see that today at a, at a lot of companies is incredibly important. It's a positive development that both for companies are sharing a lot of information and they're holding themselves accountable to their stakeholders for this. The other part of my job, which I think is a little more unique to GE and something I feel really fortunate of is, as you pointed out, we're in three businesses that are lined up to help solve three of the world's most pressing sustainability challenges. Uh, Climate change and the energy transition, access to, to healthcare, and more sustainable aviation. And so given how closely our business goals align with our sustainability goals, I have this unique honor of being involved in some of our strategic decisions and how we align those issues, how we can align the business goals to achieve sustainability goals. So I appreciate the opportunity I have to be part of our senior leadership team, to work with our company's senior leaders, to work with our board, to integrate sustainability truly into how we are defining the future of our businesses.
0: Thanks, Roger. And I just want to pick up on one thing you were just talking about, which is, it seems as though... Many of the aspects of the business itself now feed right into sustainability with developing different sustainable jet engines or fuel or this healthcare, access to healthcare and making it more efficient. I'm curious if sort of the idea of sustainability at GE is a relatively new concept or how long you would say it's been around as an idea within the business strategy at GE?
1: It's a really great question, because you could argue it both ways in terms of how we explicitly talk about it versus how we implicitly run our businesses. And so let me start with the latter. I'll go back to your introduction of Thomas Edison. We're a 130-year-old company, starting with the light bulb and other things. But if you look at what's been the unifying theme of our company, it's always been how we innovate technology to lift up the quality of life for people around the world in 175 countries. I don't think Thomas Edison, my prediction would be, because I've been to his desk and things like that, that he thought about sustainability using those words. And probably a lot of his people who followed him maybe didn't talk about sustainability. But what they were doing is the core of how we think about sustainability, looking to lift up the quality of life for people all around the world. And that really resonates today. So even if we haven't used the right language and acronyms. I think it's been core to how we've run our businesses, this notion of working globally to find ways to help people prosper. I think that's core to sustainability. It's been core to our businesses. Now, your point is fair. I think how much we've been vocalizing and aligning our business goals publicly to the sustainability missions, that has kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. Obviously, it's more front and center today. And we have you know looked to these opportunities, I think, to take what we've been doing internally to understand how closely this aligns to some of the the goals in the world people really care about, and to communicate that and be more transparent with our stakeholders in aligning some of the language and, and the way we talk about these things.
0: That's great. I'm also just going to follow one thread, and then I'll get back to learning a little more about you, which I'd like to do sort of upfront. It's interesting to me, the way you talk about sustainability as sort of impact and this idea of lifting up the quality of life. Because the word sustainability could imply more just enabling things to continuously move, sort of to continue to sustain things. So I'm curious how you sort of arrive at your idea of sustainability as impact, as opposed to just this idea of sort of maybe circularity that comes up at in other discussions of it.
1: I think it's a great question. I think it goes to probably what is the theme of the current right now is we're going to use a lot of words, sustainability, ESG, net zero, carbon neutrality, circular economy, product stewardship. And the question is, who defines these and what are you talking about? Because I think among my peers and I and our stakeholders who are giving us feedback, there's a lot of confusion in this area and it's, it's well justified. So there's some things you can, as we get into the conversation where there are some definitions out there, there's some standard setting organizations. But this is a big area where I think you have to be crystal clear when you use certain words, exactly what you're talking about. And if someone wants to debate me and say, well, I would define that differently, I welcome that debate and I would respect that. But what I care about is credibility and making sure if I'm communicating something, people know exactly what I'm talking about. I'd rather debate them on whether they think I'm right or wrong versus overstating something. So my own view on sustainability, and people could debate this, is sustainability really comes down to, at its core, equity. It comes down to making sure everybody in the world has the same opportunities to prosper. That may mean protection from climate change, protection, access to water, economic opportunities, access to health care. But at core, it's the notion of equity, that we're working towards finding the same opportunities for everybody to prosper, for their children, for vulnerable populations. And I think that aligns pretty well to what I look to the most, the United Nations. The United Nations maybe comes the closest to defining these terms with the Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 of them, and, and they very much, I think, focus on this more holistic theme of it's important to have be protected from climate change. It's important to have access to clean water, but it's also important to have access to health care, to education, gender equality, and things like that. And it's all centered around about how do we help people prosper, live prosperous lives and have the same opportunities. That's my view of sustainability. And I think a lot of things fall within that, including the impacts.
0: That's a very ambitious definition. And so we'll talk a little bit about the goals that GE is setting as an organization towards sustainability and how we sort of evaluate those progress towards those goals over time. Before we get there, though, I did want to zoom back out a little bit and, or maybe it's zooming in to you and ask given that you've had these different roles in government and private practice, I'm really interested in sort of your own motivations for. Joining a company like GE, you know, as an environmental lawyer by training, what were the factors that made you want to join GE?
1: I think there were two primarily, and one goes back to my roles in the government and the Justice Department and EPA. I always felt passionate about public service. It was the only reason I went to law school. Is I wanted to to work for the government. That was my dream, and so I felt this real passion for public service and the ability to make positive impacts. Hopefully, along the way and. I thought that several years ago, as I worked with clients in the private sector, I was seeing a lot of good getting done by companies. And I had a sense that maybe companies were kind of being under-recognized in their potential to be part of the solution. That in my career as an environmentalist, we, environmental lawyer, we tended to think of companies as kind of being part of the problem, you know, enforcement actions and pollution, and that's all true and fair. But I was starting to think that there was an opportunity to see the the public good that companies were doing, and to to maybe mimic some of the things that were good about the government and good about companies, and try to think about how companies could focus more on the public good side of things. So that was really an interest to me, you know, years ago. And then I thought about, well, which company actually, you know, could fit that mold? And, and in my view, for the reasons we've talked about, that GE is unique. I mean, there's lots of companies do lots of public good in lots of ways, but to the things I cared about, you know, the energy transition, climate change you know, even understanding more the importance of access to healthcare and the global presence, the global reach of GE and its focus on innovation, to me, it was like un- incomparable in terms of where there could be a platform for seeing how a company could do public good. And so it's been nice to see, you know, why I took a little bit of, it was a little bit speculative at the time, you know, leaving the law firm environment. I think these trends as a result of COVID have, you know, really become mainstream where people saw with COVID, that companies were doing more than just good for their shareholders, they were doing that, but they were also stepping up to do public good and stepping outside their bounds to bring benefit to their communities and supply chains like that. And now I think post-COVID, we see cemented the focus on companies doing this public good, corporate social responsibility. And again, I, I think GE is just so well positioned with this global footprint, the commitment to innovation and technology. Help be one of the leaders. I'm not suggesting we're the only one, but to help be among those cadre of companies, kind of doing really good for our shareholders. That's that's
0: goal number one. But also balancing that with how we can do some public good along the way. I wanted to just ask one other question. That's kind of about you. Kind of about sustainability. I'm curious how legal your role is. Obviously, you have a background as an environmental lawyer and legal training. But when you hear the title, sustainability officer. Is that a role that is governed by many different statutes or laws, or is this more a role that comes down to internal business goal setting? I guess I'm sort of interested in the extent to which legal training and external guidelines really sort of inform the work that you do.
1: Well, thank you for that. And it's a question I get a, a lot. And I would say you would not have to be a lawyer to do this type of work and some people might debate whether it's a positive or a negative i think the skills i bring from my legal career to this job are just communication skills and maybe a sense of judgment you develop as a lawyer but i tend to say that we as i said i think earlier we need to run our sustainability programs with the same accountability as our business operations and you have to be working as a business person you have to be working on someone who can operationalize programs and if you look at you know where the sec is going We're seeing this merger of ESG performance and financial performance. We're seeing that in EU. So I, I think it's a bit of a more operational mindset than necessarily a legal one. Now, lawyers can bring, I'd like to believe, I'd like to believe my colleagues agree that lawyers can bring really strong skills to this type of role, like I've talked about. Having the environmental background, having a background in sustainability and all those types of things has been helpful here. But there is a role for lawyers. I want to be very clear. We work very closely with the legal function. When it comes to the intersection of these issues in the law, particularly on compliance issues, on growing reporting issues, there's a lot of issues emerging around governance and you know how you interact with shareholders and things like that. That where the lawyers have a very strong role to play. So there's plenty of opportunities here for lawyers. And you know, as we get into the conversation, we can discuss some of
0: those along the way. That's I think helpful context and maybe a call to <laughs> to future sustainability lawyers. Which is great. So let's talk a little bit about these actual terms of net zero, carbon neutrality, corporate sustainability pledges. These are terms that I think we hear a lot, but they're not necessarily well-defined or they're not always defined the same. So I'm curious if you could sort of describe what people are talking about in general when they refer to net zero or carbon neutrality and companies making these net zero pledges.
1: Thank you. And I agree with your premise that they're not well defined. They're defined in different ways. And so I want to start with what sounds like a lawyerly caveat. But what I want to do is share kind of how we think about it. I think there's a certain common ground to these definitions. And then there's some areas of departure. And as I say, this is a hot topic among me and my peers in terms of, you know, we all wish we were all speaking. It would be good if we had more uniformity around this. The way we have chosen to approach these terms is credibility is our North Star. Anything we do in the sustainability space credibility is always the answer and we always even if it's a close call we're always going to err towards credibility so what that means is if we're using terms like net zero carbon neutrality we're going to very specifically tell you what we mean it may sound boring it may there may be a lot of words in there but we think it's more important to be credible and transparent so that when my 15-year-old daughter is reading this she knows exactly what I'm talking about and exactly what I'm not talking about she may come back and criticize me and say that I disagree. You should have included that. Fair, but at least you know what I'm including, what I'm not. So to break it down, when we use the the term carbon neutrality, we are talking about the emissions that come from our operations. So the emissions that come out of our factories and our office buildings all around the world, and also the power that we purchase to run our factories and office buildings. So these are frequently referred to as Scope One and Scope Two emissions. And so when we say we're going to be carbon neutral. It means that we want to reduce our emissions as aggressively as we can. I'd like to come back and talk about that, how we're approaching it, to lower our greenhouse gas emissions from our operations. And if at the end of the day, after we've really exhausted everything we can, we would look on how to offset those emissions so that our operations at the end of the day are neutral, means we're offsetting everything that we're we're emitting. But right now, we're focused on how do we most aggressively reduce emissions. And that's our approach to carbon neutrality. When we think about net zero, we think about it a bit broadly. First of all, it's it's not just carbon, it's the full suite of greenhouse gases. And we think longer term about the products we sell, and we can talk about this in more detail, but what we're aiming for is that longer term, the products we sell, including our energy products, which include gas turbines and our jet engines for commercial use, that ultimately they get to the same point where we've decarbonized their emissions to the fullest extent. And then to the extent there's there's something left that we can't decarbonize, we're offsetting that with direct air capture or some other approach. So that's at least how we define it. We define them very specifically. We can probably come and chat about that even, even at a higher level of detail. I think that's roughly akin to most folks, but there may be different interpretations of how someone says net zero, they may say full abatement of emissions and, and so on.
0: And then just to plug in one other term that we hear, which is sort of scope one. Scope 2, Scope 3 emissions. So my impression is that when you say carbon neutrality and you were saying that applies to operations, that's really the idea of Scope 1 and 2 emissions. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. We, we have a commitment to be carbon neutral in our Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions by 2030. So those are our operational emissions, those that we emit directly and those from the power that we purchase.
0: Okay. And then can you describe what the difference is with Scope 3. I know it's it's a different kettle of fish entirely.
1: It is a different kettle of fish. I, I like that. Scope 3 is fundamentally different. It's basically everything that's not your operational emissions. It's everything upstream of your operations and everything downstream of your emissions. And there's I think there's 14 or 15 different categories of Scope 3 emissions going to supply chain and transportation and the products that you sell and things like that. So for many companies, including GE... Scope 3 emissions would be the largest part of emissions. For GE, it's the vast majority of our emissions. And it's one of the specific categories. It's the category of sold products, the products we sell, because we sell gas turbines and we sell jet engines. And these are two of the world's most intensive greenhouse gas emitting pieces of technology. They're critical technologies to keeping the lights on, to keeping people connected, but they do emit an intense amount of greenhouse gases. So... Keeping with my earlier theme, when we talk about scope three, we never say scope three. And this is an area where I think there's a lot of confusion. I say something quite boring. I say we are focused to on an ambition to be net zero for our scope three emissions from our sold products from aviation and energy. And that's all very specific because we don't want to be misleading. We don't want to suggest that we have made an ambition today to be net zero in everything we do. Maybe we'll get there. But we're focusing on where we have the most impacts. And the vast majority of our emissions come from jet engines. And come from our gas turbines. So if we can focus our attention on those, we'll be able to not only address the majority of our emissions, but we'll help our customers as well because our Scope 3 emissions are our customers' Scope 1 emissions, if that makes sense. And So if we can decarbonize our Scope 3 emissions, our customers are going to decarbonize their Scope 1 emissions. So we're very specific on what we're focused on today. We've had a lot of support for that. We may consider other things down the road but we're one of a small handful of companies that really isn't a place to to decarbonize these technologies. And so that's where our attention is.
0: Yeah. And I I really want to talk about how you actually go about doing this decarbonization and then emissions reduction. Maybe we could start with the operational emissions, because that seems like it's a little bit more within your control. It's something where you have an explicit target for 2030. So I'd be curious, first of all, how you as a company arrived at the particular timing of your goal of setting 2030 as this time when you're going for neutrality in terms of operational emissions and then also what the plan looks like to get to that goal and you had mentioned emissions reduction being a really important part of that so i'm i'm very really curious what that actually looks like as applied great great so in 2019 we
1: did announce an ambition to be carbon neutral in our scope 1 and scope 2 emissions by 2030. So as you said these are our operational emissions from our factories, from our offices, from the energy we purchase. And you know, we're a big industrial company. We still make in our factories lots of energy intensive products and ship them all around the world. So, you know, as an industrial company, our this is a big challenge to be able to achieve that goal, but we feel very strongly about it. So the good news is we're about 18 months little getting closer to 2 years and we're already Achieving 21% reduction compared to our baseline. So that's positive, but it gets harder as you go along. Each of our businesses has set plans for the decade on how they're going to pursue this goal. And, And each business is tailored a little bit differently based on the type of work they do, where they are in the world, the opportunities that present. But it comes around three themes. First is operational improvements. We run our businesses through a lean system where you're always looking to drive more efficiency in your operations. So the more efficient, we can become in our operations. That's good for business, it's good for our our shareholders, and it's good for carbon neutrality and reducing our emissions. So the first approach is operational improvements pursuant to lean systems. The second approach is similar to that, eliminating waste, make sure that we're being more efficient in in how we use energy, that we're recycling energy, capturing it, and, and just finding ways to reduce that waste, upgrading, becoming more energy efficient, and so on. And then the third is, how do we purchase energy? Even though we're an energy company, we provide one third of the world's energy. We have to buy a lot of energy like everybody else. And so like other companies, we're focused on clean energy purchases. And over time, you know, the more clean energy we can purchase, that will help our scope to emissions. So, so far, we've gotten to a 21% reduction. We know it's going to get harder with every year, but we have a 10-year plan for each. And our goal is to reduce at least 50% of our emissions directly. Some of our businesses are focused even on higher goals than that. And then we will look at offsets down the road. But at the moment, we're challenging ourselves very aggressively to reduce the emissions directly before we kind of turn to relying on offsets a little bit later this decade.
0: Thank you. I just want to follow up on one of the things you were saying. It struck me when you were talking about energy recycling that I'm curious... How much does the plan to reduce emissions in the next 10 years rely on technology change that hasn't happened yet? I'm just curious, sort of, from your vantage point right now, do you have all the tools you need, in theory, to make the change to reduce emissions 50%, like you were saying? Or is there some degree to which you are expecting and planning to develop new technologies that increase efficiency or increase your recycling of waste products. I'm just curious, Sort of, are you working with existing tools exclusively or relying partially on tools that still need to be developed?
1: You know, it's a really great question. And I think it's a different answer for scope one, two, and three. I think for our scope one and two, we have probably a line of sight to what this decade looks like. It's probably existing tools. And the question is investments, the timing of those investments and how that all lines up. That's not to say something could come along that could make make us even more ambitious. I think we revisit this every year, and if if new technology is innovated that could be make us be more aggressive, or if we can get more renewable energy out there, then we would look to adopt that. But right now, we're I think setting our scope one and scope two targets based on our line of sight to existing technology and when those investments can arise. Scope three is fundamentally different than that. Again, if we go back to what we're trying to do with scope three, which is decarbonize aviation and energy, that is going to rely on technologies that are not currently kind of being implemented or at commercial scale today. And we've been very clear in documenting this that while we want to provide the best technology today to make progress, the technology we have today is not enough. We're, we're very clear on that. We have to innovate the next generation of breakthrough technologies. So we've outlined, you know, in our reports what we think the future looks like for those breakthrough technologies, what we're doing today to innovate them and where our partnerships come into play with the government and with our customers and with other parties to make sure we have the technology for the future that we think we're going to need because we know today's technology is not enough.
0: That's a good transition, I think, to talking a little bit more about the scope three or emissions associated with the product use. Just to put it in context, you have sustainability reports, which is great. You released one really recently, and it's noticeable in reading the report that The emissions associated with use of, for instance, the aviation products are over 15 times greater than all the operational emissions. So it's obviously a much larger task to address these scope three or emissions associated with the use of your product. So I'm curious if you could say a little more about how you can approach this much larger task. And you were just saying the technology in that instance is not there, and you have to think about the innovation that you're going to attempt over the next Decades, but if you could say a little more about how you start going about decarbonization in your actual products that you're making and putting into the market,
1: yeah, no, thank you for that. It, you know, it is so fundamentally different. It's almost like I wish it was like scope one and two, and then like scope X or something, because because it's it's hard to draw comparisons between the two. If we talk about scope one and two, it's purchasing more renewable energy, it's being more efficient. I think a lot of businesses have a line of sight to that. We'll take your example of focusing on aviation. I think it's a good example to focus on. The goal there with Scope 3 is to decarbonize jet engines. And so let's talk about the differences in those challenges. The goal of a jet engine is to provide propulsion to get something from point A to point B in a way that prioritizes safety over everything else. And what I've come to appreciate is we can talk about Scope 3 and things like that. But when you really get on the ground and talk to the engineers and go into the buildings and the labs... Scope 3 is really physics. It's the laws of physics. And Scope 3 is all about how do you solve for the laws of physics. We can take a jet engine, maybe find a way to take apart so it gets 1% more efficiency. But then the laws of physics come in. And what are the ramifications of that? How does it impact lifespan? How does it impact safety? How does it impact balance? And that's what we're solving for. If you were to go into our labs today, you would find engineers in there working on parts of future jet engines and testing them today that we're not going to use this decade. Hopefully, we'll use 12, 13, 14 years from now. But the life cycle of these technologies are so long, we have to be making those investments today. If we're not doing it, we will not be ready. And so when we think about our scope three ambition for our sold products to be net zero, people generally think about emissions, and that's fair. But I think about it differently. To me, what it signifies is we're making those investments today to innovate the technology that the world's going to need. like Our scope three ambition means we have people working in our labs today who are trying to figure out what technologies we're going to use in 2032. And from an aviation standpoint, it means sustainable aviation fuel. Our engines already run on sustainable aviation fuel, but we want to get them certified to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. That's one goal. It involves hybrid electric engines. It involves hydrogen engines and open fan designs and things like this. I think what that means is When you go into an airport today, you know one thing. You know you're going to get on a plane that's going to probably have two engines on it, two jet engines. You may not know the size of the plane or the size of the engines, but you can feel pretty confident you're going to be on a plane with a wing and two, maybe four jet engines. In the future, that may look a little bit differently. You may have a plane with two engines. You may have a plane that's a hybrid electric. You may have a plane with an open fan. You may have a plane running on hydrogen. It's going to depend on how far you're flying, the number of people on your plane. Is this a regional flight, a long-haul flight? Is it how much sustainable aviation fuel is being used? So these are the types of issues that we're dealing with today to chart things out over the decades to come to fulfill that scope three ambition for aviation.
0: Very helpful example. And just as a technology nerd, I think it's pretty cool hearing about these different things that are in the works. One thing I'm curious about, just following our conversation a little bit, is we've been treating these goals as sort of internally motivated, like The idea of GE coming up with these goals, thinking carefully about what they should be and separating the scope one and two from the scope three and treating them differently as appropriate. I'm curious, sort of, what the external drivers of these goals are. Like, is there demand in the world for setting these goals that you feel? Does it come from shareholders? Does it come from customers? Like, in the case of aviation, do you feel pressure from? airline companies to develop sustainable engines. I'm just curious, sort of, what beyond the either sort of business strategy of GE or sort of conscience of leadership at GE motivates the creation of these carbon neutrality goals?
1: (laughs) You know, it's a really important question, because I think it's a defining characteristic of the sustainability era or the corporate social responsibility era, which is all of this is being done in partnership. This is no longer just companies working as companies, but working closely with our stakeholders along the way. And our most important stakeholders, top of mind, are our employees. Our employees kind of feel a united purpose, a sense of purpose in these issues, and they hold us as accountable as anybody for our goals, our targets, and our performance. And it's a huge source of retention. It's a huge source of recruitment. So we start with our employees as kind of the stakeholders that we hear the most from and that we're working the most closely with. And and. They are um, also sometimes our closest you know, assessors of how we're doing and and not shy in sharing information. We appreciate that. But to your other point, our partnership with stakeholders is really key to this. We have our customers and our customers have made their own ambitions and commitments and they're under their various stakeholder pressures. They have to count on us to innovate the technology they need. So we work very closely with our customers. Our investors in the area of sustainable finance were... You know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about this role is over the last 18 months, I have developed relationships with all of our major banks and investors so that we can stay closely coordinated on how our innovation is tracking their own goals for the investments they're making, the types of customers they're investing in. And this growth of sustainable finance has been a huge driver in this space. If we talk about government, they're another important stakeholder. Traditionally, there's been like a command and control regulatory approach to this sphere. Back to my earlier comment, that's still true but the relationship with governments is evolving to much more one of partnership where they're sharing investments with us in these technologies research and development sharing the risk and helping incentivize to get some of these nascent technologies off the ground and we work with NGOs we work with you know investor groups we work with all kinds of groups but we are very closely integrated into all these stakeholders who we're talking to in real time they can just send an email Set up a call and we're going to share this information with a lot of transparency. So that's been a defining kind of change of the sustainability era.
0: When you're setting a goal like that's 30 years down the road related to these massive emissions associated with the use of products, how do you adjust over time? And what are the factors that keep you to those goals and sort of work against challenges that come up as you try to meet those goals?
1: I think it's a really important question because. Even though we're technology company, we do not have a crystal ball or a time machine. And I think as we're looking at these 30-year goals, we have to be very clear on that and we have to prioritize credibility. So we've struggled with this. We've thought really hard. We know our stakeholders want to hear us think about the next 30 years, but we really want to share what we know and what we don't know at the same time to maintain this credibility. We don't want to suggest we're not being aggressive or ambitious. We are. But at the same time, we want to be honest brokers. So, we struggled with this. And one of the things we did, which I think is a little unique, is we announced that we're going to have some principles, four principles, on how we're going to approach net zero in the lens through 2050. And you'll know that whatever we're sharing or communicating is going to be heard through these four principles. And so, the first one we've talked about a lot credibility. That's the most important to us. We're always going to prioritize that. We're going to share what we know, we're going to share what we don't know, we're going to share where we have some doubts and reservations and the caveats and things like that. And we're going to err on the side, always on credibility on communicating this information. The second one, we also talked about collaboration. That to get to net zero in 2050, even a company like GE cannot do this alone. We we would not succeed on our own. We need to partner with our customers. We need to partner with the governments. We need to partner with lots of stakeholders, anybody who will partner with us to help make sure that we're working together towards this path together. The types of technologies we use are not standalone units. They work closely with other technologies and we have to be very integrated there. The uh, third principle is continuous learning that we are committed to constantly work on what we don't know to try to improve. And as we get information that, you know, may cause us to revisit some of our assumptions, some of the technologies we're investing in, we will make those adjustments in real time. We'll continue to update everybody on what we're learning, but we will make a commitment to make sure that we're not just resting On what we decided today, when we published our plan, it's not like it's locked in and we're just going to stick to it. We're going to make continuous adjustments to it to improve it as we go along. And then the fourth is, you know, this commitment to innovation and technology that our approach to to scope three and net zero would be dependent on innovation and technology, that that's where we can deliver the most good. That's where the majority of our impact is. And that's where our expertise really lies. So for now, that is our focus when it comes to scope three. So those are the principles and the lens by which we're going to continue to look and communicate on this going forward, knowing how much uncertainty there is for the decades to come.
0: Thank you. That's a really helpful framework, I think, for at least showing how you're thinking about the inherent unpredictability of a timeline that spans 30 years. I want to ask one last question in this area, which is you know, we've been talking a lot about GE specifically, and the sort of thoughtful process you've gone through in setting your goals. Looking beyond GE, though, we've seen this huge growth in net zero pledges in the last few years, just really an explosion of these pledges. And I'm curious to get your take on sort of how we should evaluate this growth in pledges. And to the extent there is a difference in quality, or sort of the word you've been using, credibility between these pledges. How do we differentiate pledges that are made in good faith and thoughtfully from those that are not?
1: I think your observation is right. It's very fair and something we pay attention to, too, because we would like to see all of our peers take similar approaches to credibility. And I would say what I look for, this is just my own rule, is I look for the boring stuff. Like, I hope I've come off a little bit boring today because I have wanted to be very factual and not oversell something and suggest like, you know, we're going to suddenly do something overnight that's going to make everybody all of a sudden better. And I think sometimes you see some of these commitments and, and they tend to be very general and kind of presenting a picture of a future with not the details to get you there. So you really have to look at the details and the more specificity, the more your confidence level should go up you want to like when i talk about this you know we have an ambition to be net zero by 2050 for our sold products from our aviation and energy businesses that's a lot but people know exactly what i'm talking about and what i'm not talking about there's 14 categories of scope three they know i'm not talking about 13 of the 14 i'm talking about one the one that's most impactful so you want to look for the footnotes you want to look for the appendixes my guess is a lot of times you're going to find something you're going to see a big page that says we're going to be net zero. And then there's going to be footnotes saying, well, this is the scope one and two, or maybe it's scope three for this very specific issue, and so on. So look for that. If you don't find the footnotes, if you don't find the appendix, then I'd probably be even more scrutinizing of what the reports look like. So I think you have to pull that apart with that kind of detail to make those apples to apples comparison.
0: That's great. In that case, I want to conclude this interview with a couple of questions that are a little more sort of broad in scope and looking at this from a more systemic level. So one thing that might be on a lot of listeners' mind as they're listening to this episode is that the Supreme Court recently handed down a decision in West Virginia versus EPA, and they focused on the power sector GHG regulations and relied on this idea of the major questions doctrine in stating that there may be sort of constrained regulatory authority of the federal government to address climate change. And so I'm curious to get your take on if we do think the government is constrained in how it can address climate change, does that shift the focus on what companies can or should do? And in your opinion, what role would you like to see major companies like GE take in the future toward protecting the environment and addressing climate change? In 2007, the Supreme
1: Court issued you know its decision in Massachusetts versus EPA that for the first time opened the door for EPA to regulate Greenhouse gases and climate change. So I was the general counsel of EPA at the time, and I was one of the people tasked with coming up with all the ways we could use the law, use EPA's authority to address climate change. And I've seen this probably as closely as anybody. You know what I call the the Massachusetts versus EPA cinematic universe of proposing regulations, the Supreme Court affirming some of it, the Supreme Court taking some of it away. But this has now gone on since like 2007. And so prior to West Virginia versus EPA, I given my kind of attention to this issue had concluded that the law would be helpful, the, the right laws would be helpful to advance things. But given this had gone on for decades, like a ping pong match and all the challenges with rulemaking, that we cannot wait or fully rely on the law to provide the solutions here. So I have you know, long been a proponent of the companies need to show leadership in this space. I would probably argue, and I have argued, frankly, that we're at a pivotal time where companies going forward for the decades to come are going to lead these issues globally. We'll work in partnership with all of our stakeholders we talked about. But if you look at the accountability to our stakeholders, the types of commitments companies are making on a global level, the investments they're making in technology, that I think we have to understand that it is up to companies to work towards leadership on these issues. And and while laws can frequently help accelerate things, while they can complement things, you know, someone who's been very closely on working on these issues from day one, I, I don't want to count or rely on weight on them. And I don't want to suggest that laws are important or regulations are important. That's not what I'm saying. But it, I think we're seeing increasing opportunity for companies to kind of use action to move forward and act with the sense of urgency that that's probably warranted here.
0: And final question Do you think there's will for that to be the role that companies play? You could speak just from the perspective of GE or your sense of private industry more broadly. So
1: there's something called the Edelman Trust Barometer, and it surveys like 18,000 people all around the world in you know, many countries in terms of how they view institutions. In this year, the Edelman Trust Barometer said that companies are the only trusted institutions to solve some of these challenges. It's not like we got an A-plus score. It's all relative, but we, companies were the only ones that came out above the threshold of being Trusted. So I think it reinforces the theme that the stakeholders are our, our employees, our customers, our investors, that they are expecting companies to show more leadership here. And I think COVID was a big factor of that. I think, you know, the, in the post COVID world, there was the example set of corporate social responsibility. And I actually, you know, published an article on this not too long ago with a, with a colleague, Irma Russell, where we actually traced back the purpose of the company to its earliest days. I think back to the 19th century. I found that corporate entity was actually formed to do public good. And we've seen corporate social responsibility evolve now ESG. So I think the answer is for a variety of reasons that companies are increasingly understanding and to some extent embracing this opportunity to be part of the solution. And let's be clear, I've tried to say this a few times. When I talk about a public good, it's not just companies are here to do charitable purposes. That's a big part. Philanthropy is a big part of what companies do. But there's a growing recognition that what's good for shareholders, and we have an obligation to shareholders, can also be good for more broad addressing these issues, more broad sustainability. And part of what I think we're seeing right now is this closer alignment to running businesses that are good for shareholders, but also achieve this public good addressing climate change and so on along the way.
0: Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing your thoughts. This has been really fascinating conversation. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness and willingness to talk. So thank you again.
1: Thanks for the great questions. I, r- I really enjoyed it. And I again I appreciate everything you, Carrie, and others are doing at Harvard to advance the thought leadership on these issues at this critical time. It's critically important and appreciated the honor of being included in your your efforts.